Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 14 and 24 through 29. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In everything you do to others, as in everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who bears these words and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished, astounded that, at his teachings, uh, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Corey, for reading that. I know it was long, and there weren't many um, awkward pronouns, but in some ways when you're reading scripture like this where it feels like just a collection of sayings, it's a lot harder to read than a long narrative. In many ways, today's section of verses really does feel just like it sounds. It's a random selection of things that some of them even sound like you might have you know, read them on a fortune cookie somewhere. They're very different. They feel and read differently than the carefully crafted prose that we are used to finding in the Gospels. This last section of the Sermon on the Mount just feels different from the Beatitudes that we find at the beginning or the parables that follow in Matthew's Gospel. Here, Jesus' words are less like a story and more like a bullet point list of things we are supposed to do. One that begins with do not judge and then jumps to not profa- or for profaning the holy and then asking God for what we want and then the golden rule and so on and so forth. 
And the scholarship would agree. Scholars note that each little section of this chapter could produce its own sermon. And many of them, these scholars, they think that each section probably was its own sermon at some point, and that the early churches, those that were forming and developing in Matthew's community like 60 to 70 years after Jesus's life, They wanted to preserve and remember and honor all the teachings of Jesus's sermons. And so if this is true, then the Sermon on the Mount is not just one of the sermons Jesus preached, but it is all the sermons Jesus preached. It is the ultimate sermon that sets the stage for Jesus's unfolding ministry in Nazareth. Well, either way, whether Jesus stood on the hillside north of Galilee and preached the entire sermon, chapters 5 through 7, or if Matthew's community compiled these things as a list of sayings, there is plenty of fodder for us to sort our way through in the next 15 minutes or so. I don't know about you, but whenever I read scripture like this, lists of do's and don'ts, I begin to feel kind of overwhelmed. Reading these portions is not like reading a nice cohesive story that takes us on an exciting narrative journey all leading up to a main point, one takeaway thing to implement and apply in my own life. No, this kind of reading feels different. It feels daunting like more things to add to the moral checklist of life, which is already quite full. And these are not simple things. These are not kind of 101 level moral things like some of the Ten Commandments might seem. For example, do not steal, do not kill, maybe even do not lie. Those I feel like I can kind of wrap my head around But here, the list is much harder, much more complicated, and it makes me feel a lot more vulnerable. Do not judge others so that you may not be judged. Do not profane that which is holy, giving what is holy to the dogs or throwing it to the swine. Okay, that one is going to require some exegesis. Ask, search, and knock. That one feels doable, and I do like that it comes with a hopeful promise. God gives us that which we seek in that portion of the text. And then there's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That one is so familiar that it doesn't weigh us down like the rest of the text. But when you think about it, implementing the golden rule is easier said than done. But then there's the narrow gate and the reminder that often the pathway towards God is more obscured and it can feel awfully lonely. So when approaching a text like this, maybe we should take things one at a time. Maybe then they would be a little more doable and a little less overwhelming. So let's start at the beginning. Do not judge. This one's going to take a lot of attention. Because judgments are so prevalent in our world, are they not? We are hardwired to judge based on things like race and gender and money and status and ability and work experience and education, and I'm just getting started. We encounter people who 
look differently than we do, people who think differently than we do, people who live differently than we do, and we go and make judgments about them based on what we think and who we think they are. If we want to truly rid our lives of judging others, it's going to take a constant and intentional effort to reprogram our minds so that we're not always pointing out the proverbial speck in our neighbor's eye, just trying to stick with the biblical metaphor there. Nothing could make this more plain than our current political environment. Think about how easy it is to judge our neighbors who just think differently than we do. And this is just one of the characteristics of kingdom living in today's text. Just one instruction in that long list of things which will make God's heart proud. Just one. And I am already feeling overwhelmed. Are you? Now there are some who would like to reduce Christianity to a list of moralistic do's and don'ts. And these are often harmful and dehumanizing. When used in such a way, the Bible can become a tool misapplied to make others feel guilty and at times even to doubt their own salvation just for not following the rules. These interpretations of biblical living equate righteousness with a kind of timeless and cross-cultural legalism. And they reduce the mystery and the beauty of God's spirit at work in the world. They steal the power of the gospel to transform our lives and our communities through the gifts of grace and love. To further the point, two well-known authors have experimented with this kind of idea. The journalist A.J. Jacobs wrote a book in 2008 called A Year of Living Biblically. Did you read this one? It was a memoir of his 365-day journey where he would try to implement every single rule in the Bible exactly as it was written. The well-known ones, like the Ten Commandments, and also the lesser-known ones, things like do not wear clothing made of mixed fibers. Did you check your tags today? Do not shave your beard. I see some of you in violation of that. And, a, and we have to pummel the idols, which is written in the Bible. This one, Jacob has found particularly hard to implement given that he lived in Manhattan. A few years later, Rachel Held Evans wrote her own bestseller on the same subject, this one called A Year of Biblical Womanhood, and she found herself engaging in some very interesting behaviors, like calling her husband master every time she wanted to speak to him, covering her head any time a prayer was being said, sitting on the roof of her house in an act of penance, And strangest of all, having to keep quiet during football games because first Peter describes the godly woman as having a gentle and quiet spirit. Ladies, remember this tonight if you find yourselves watching a game. This specific task was a big deal for a girl who grew up in Alabama, where the third most important question when you meet someone after what's your name and where do you go to church is... Alabama or Auburn? Isn't that right, Annabeth? (laughs) Both of these books were widely read, 
And they were widely loved by people inside and outside of the Christian faith. And I suspect they were so popular because somewhere deep down inside each and every one of us is a little person who is just trying to get it right. 100% right, 100% of the time. But before too long, if we hold ourselves to that kind of standard, we begin to see that this whole experiment in biblical living is easier said than done. It can be absolute, excuse me, absolutely overwhelming. Jacobs and Evans both come to their work from different places and different faith backgrounds. Jacobs, of course, is a reporter and he calls himself a secular Jew, naming that he grew up in the tradition, but he is more of an agnostic. And he really thought that his work, that his experiment would highlight the ridiculousness of religion in our modern world. That is what he thought. And Evans was beginning to break away from her own conservative evangelical Christian upbringing, and she thought that this project might expose some of the problems with biblical literalism and that it might even make her want to take a break from the Bible altogether. But here's the thing. Despite their assumptions and their fears and their feelings of overwhelm as they looked ahead at this task, both authors were surprised that grace met them along the way. At the end of her year-long experiment, Rachel Held Evans realized that she could not walk away from the Bible. She could not take a break from this sacred text. Instead, she resolved, in her own words, to keep loving, studying, and struggling with it because no matter how hard I fight it, she says, it will always keep calling me back. And as she kept on, she discovered that somewhere between the rooftop and the red tent, she had learned to love the Bible again for what it is, not for what she wanted it to be. The Bible isn't an answer book, she writes. It isn't a self-help manual. It isn't a flat, perspicuous list of rules and regulations that we can interpret and objectively apply unilaterally to our lives. The Bible, she writes, is a sacred collection of letters and laws, poetries and proverbs, philosophy and prophecies written and assembled over thousands of years in cultures and contexts different from our own that tells the complex ever unfolding story of God's interaction with humanity. And when we turn to the Bible, when we turn it into an adjective and stick it in front of other loaded words like manhood or womanhood or politics or economics or marriage or even equality, we tend to ignore and downplay the parts of the Bible that don't exactly fit our taste. In an attempt to simplify We try to force the Bible's cacophony of voices into one single tone, to turn a complicated and at times troubling text into a list of bullet points that we can put into a manifesto or a creed. More often than not, we end up more committed to what we want the Bible to say than to what it actually says. 
Friends, this is why we all need the grace-filled invitation found at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. The final movement of the sermon. Now, I have heard that even the best speakers, teachers, and preachers know that what the audience or congregation or classroom will take away is just the last thing that you say. And so maybe Jesus knew this when he put together the Sermon on the Mount. The last movement of the sermon is a parable that goes like this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. Now, Jesus could have said, everyone who hears these words and follows every instruction to a T, or everyone who hears and gets it all right all the time, or even everyone who hears and believes and goes and tells everybody else that they better straighten up. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus simply says, everyone who hears these words and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Everyone who hears and acts. Do you hear the grace in that? I do. We're not off the hook, so to speak, with the sometimes overwhelming requirements of faithful living, but we are also not expected to get it right 100% of the time. Rather, we are invited to love invited to study, invited to struggle with the Bible so that we can use it as our strong foundation upon which everything else is built. Thinking about it this way reminds me of what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is a summation of the law which feels a little less overwhelming than trying to keep and remember every single law. And yet it's not a reduction or a diminishment of the law because really we could spend our whole lives just trying to figure out how to love. Maybe we won't get it right all the time. Maybe we can't follow all the rules, never messing up. After all, we're only human. Maybe we can't solve every crisis or prevent all the bad things from happening. Maybe we can't show up at every bedside or every doorstep. Maybe we can't right all the wrongs in the world or heal all the pain in the world. Maybe we can't even mend our own pain or brokenness all the time. But that's okay. Because if we build our lives on love, like a house built on a solid rock, surely grace and wisdom, and maybe even the Spirit of God too, will meet us there and guide our steps forward. I don't know about you, but when I think about it that way, reading scripture like the one we read today, feels a little less daunting, a little bit less like an impossible summation of all the times we got it wrong or missed the mark or made a total misstep, and a little more like an invitation, 
one full of grace and love, summoning us to come and see, not to let go, but to come and wrestle and struggle, to come and grow, to come and dwell with a God whose grace is big enough for all of us. And so God, give us that kind of grace and teach us how to love like that. Amen.